philosophers have abandoned metaphysical dualism. So you don't have Cartesian right. metaphysical dualism. Unfortunately, they've, many have replaced it by something worse, a mm. kind of a methodological dualism, which says we study things above the neck differently than the way we <laughs> see the rest of the world. Yeah. That's pernicious. There's no reason to study them the same way. Hello, my growing Geeseling army. It is Mother Goose Robinson Earhart here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast number 66. I think uh, it goes without saying, if you've looked at the title, that this is a a landmark podcast in this Robinson's podcast multiverse. And Noam Chomsky is professor of linguistics emeritus at MIT. It feels very funny introducing Noam Chomsky and laureate professor of linguistics at the University of Arizona. So Noam, as I now know him, apparently, uh, not only account counts as among the most influential linguists of all time, but he's been incredibly transformative across a wide array of disciplines in academia and outside of academia over the past 94 years. So he played major roles in philosophical debates. He was one of the fathers of, or parents, fathers of, of cognitive science. And of course, he's had a tremendous influence on political theory and not just the theory, but how politics has been done in the 20th and 21st centuries. So in conducting this interview, when I figured out or discovered that I was going to be talking to Noam, I mean, my first thought was, what am I going to talk to Noam Chomsky about? He has written something like 150 books. He's done all this work, brilliant work, the best work uh, across again, so many different subjects. And I thought, okay, we could do a really deep dive for an hour or so into some esoteric aspect of linguistics. But then this wouldn't be very accessible to many people. Or we could talk about politics. Uh, I mean, there's certainly plenty of material to discuss. But most of the interviews I see with Noam on the internet these days tend to be about politics. And then I thought, okay, well, ChatGPT is huge, but he just had this major op-ed in the New York Times about large language models. So granted Noam's status as the king of linguistics, I thought maybe we would take a step back, talk about some of the historical developments in linguistics over the past 100 years, since very few people have seen or contributed to as, as much or as many of them as he has, probably zero. He's our N of one here. And in doing so, we could talk about maybe some of the philosophical, philosophically important aspects of his work as well. And so that's what we did. We started out with his introduction to linguistics, the dominant paradigm at the time, how it shifted over the course of his career, and some of the more particular topics of discussion are 
generative grammar, universal grammar. We talk about innateness hypotheses, um, and that's related to universal grammar naturally. Uh, and then we also discuss some more philosophical questions. So Noam brings up indeterminacy of reference. Um, we touch on the relationship between thought and language. We also go into the historical continuity of linguistics and how past linguistics is still represented in contemporary linguistics. And then, of course, we do end up inevitably touching on chat GPT and large language models and the limitations or maybe limitations isn't the right word, but in Noam's opinion, their utter lack of any capacity to teach us anything about human language or linguistics or ling or our linguistic, our linguistic faculties. Now, uh, pins, my dragon, well, I've actually, I've never called her my dragon before this moment, but I was just thinking she was kind of a, not just kind of, she was a nuisance in this conversation. And as soon as she returned to her, her den, naturally, right after the conversation ended, I thought the dragon has returned to its den. So anyway, before Noam and I talked, I, I told him that I have a cat who might be co-hosting at any moment. Uh, but there was little I could do about it, and he was quite gracious. He had a dog, I think Gus was this dog's name, who was also, I think, uh, entertaining him under the table the entire episode. But unlike Pins, Gus wasn't jumping on the table. Anyway, I'm sorry if Pins is distracting to you. There, Somebody left a comment the other day a very angry comment on one of the YouTube videos about how uh, disrespectful I am having pins in these episodes. But I don't have a studio. I do these out of my apartment. And for whether you like it or not, uh, for better or for worse, she is the, the co-host. So maybe you can listen on audio or find a different podcast without a, a cat involved. And the last thing I will add is that if you're watching this on YouTube or if you clicked on this on Spotify, you saw the, the album art. Uh, it should be right over here. Uh, yeah, in this direction. Um, Noam requested, I always ask my guests if they prefer a, uh, an artist or a painting for me to use for my album art. And Noam uh, requested a, a Rembrandt. So he has some very classic tastes. And I hope you enjoy my, my artwork. Without any further ado, it is my immense honor and privilege to present to you the collaboration Noam X. Robinson that nobody has been asking for, but that you're about to get. So again, without any further ado, I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Noam. I've had a number of conversations on the show about various fields of academic inquiry. So philosophy, physics, mathematics, and how they've undergone revolutions over time, what, what their subject matter is, how it's investigated, and some of the questions these concerns raise. So take mathematics, for example, 
I mean, if the ancient Greeks used entirely different methods from us, if they had very different standards of proof, if they believed they were investigating an entirely different domain, so they construed numbers as segments rather than, say, set theoretical objects, then is it really even the same subject as our mathematics today? And I thought, since you're both regarded as one of the parents of contemporary linguistics, and also one of the people who's watched it changed the most in the past century, this would be a great topic of discussion. Perhaps as a way of setting the stage before we get into some of the transformation you've witnessed and contributed to, you've worked in a tremendous variety of domains, from linguistics and philosophy to cognitive science and political theory. What were the circumstances that led you to begin with linguistics? Um, what was the paradigm at the time you got started or the focus of study that attracted you? Well, if you really want the accurate story, I got in, I happen, I happen to have an earlier child interest in language, history of language. My father was a Semitic scholar when I was 12 years old or so. I read his doctoral dissertation on a medieval Hebrew grammarian and historical Semitic studies. I had interest in that. But um, basically, after a year of college, I was quite disappointed and, and uh, was thinking of dropping out because I didn't see any point to it. <laughs> and I happened to, through independent connections, mostly political connections, meet uh, somebody who, Zillig Harris, who was uh, didn't know at the time, was the leading theoretical linguist in the country. And we talked about various things, and he suggested I start taking his graduate courses. I didn't have any background. As background, he gave me a book of his that was in press and suggested that I just read it and proofread it. And so that was my background. Started taking his graduate courses. I was at the University of Pennsylvania, which in those days was a mostly football fraternity school, not a high-level school like it is now. But there were very distinguished faculty scattered around in various fields. So I started taking their graduate courses, Nelson Goodman in philosophy, mm. course in mathematics, and course in Ugaritics, and Arabic, and many things. And uh, just put together some totally idiosyncratic syncratic, uh, uh, program. I never really had an undergraduate education. And I never had a graduate education at all. So it's all it doesn't show put together. It's a, just I understand that Ferdinand de Saussure is considered by many to be among the thinkers most influential upon 20th century linguistics, and primarily <clears throat> for his contributions to the structuralist school. And if this is in fact, I mean, a good place to start in characterizing the field that you entered. Just what were de Saussure's primary contributions to the way we think of and study language, and what did they replace? Well, Saussure had a major influence on European linguistics. It was almost unknown in the United States. American linguists knew his name, but American linguistics was quite different. Saussure regarded uh, language. First of all, he didn't write much about general linguistics. The book of his that's famous is uh, 
notes taken by a student, which were not all that accurate when it was later done with a scholarly analysis of the text. There's an edition that came out that's quite different, but this was not his main interest. He regarded language as a kind of a social construction, a social contract among people. He developed ideas which did lead to the phonemic principle by some of his close followers at Trubitskoy, Jakobsen and others, which uh, had an analog similar developments were taking place in the United States. But the effect of Saussurian linguistics in the United States was not very substantial. In fact, as a student and graduate student, we never even looked at them. We weren't expected to know anything about it. It was, and if you look at the literature at that period, it's barely mentioned in the United States. It did lead to structuralism in a broader sense, anthropology, economics, and, uh, sociology, and so on. But I, looking back, I think the contribution to linguistics is limited, not, not very much. Uh, American linguistics at the time defined itself as a taxonomic science. Uh, that's the word that was used. There are procedures of analysis uh, which can be applied to an arbitrary collection of material. Harris's Methods and Structural Linguistics was the most sophisticated version of this. There were others by mostly directed to sound structure. That was the main topic studied. Phonemic sounds, phonemic analysis didn't go much beyond that. Harris's did go beyond, but it was unusual. The idea was you can apply these to a, any corpus of materials. It'll give you a structural analysis of the uh, corpus. In Harris's terms, it'll give you a compact one-to-one -one, uh, analysis of the uh, corpus of materials. And uh, it was assumed not by Harris, but the general assumption was Leonard Bloomfield. He was the leading figure in the field. And his view that language, as he put it, is a matter of habit and training. This was all within the broad behaviorist framework that was overwhelmingly dominant at the time. Uh, and if there was anything beyond habit and training, it was attributed to what was called analogy, whatever that is unspecified. Uh, the the work on my own work, the work on generative grammar, generally uh, took a totally different view. At first, I regarded it as a kind of personal hobby, not, not part of linguistics. In fact, my undergraduate thesis and the first major work that I did was really an exercise in Nelson's Goodman's uh, constructional analysis. Uh, is, kind of the same thinking as in his structure of appearance and so on, uh, but uh, applying to much more complex materials, the uh, complex materials of Semitic uh, um, morphology and uh, the structure, which are quite intricate. It was a study of application of measures of simplicity in Goodman's sense to choosing one or another system of uh, describing systems, but it was a generative grammar. It began with the conception that you have to begin with a recursive enumeration of the expressions of the language, and then you find the simplest account of that. That's the most explanatory, the simplest account. It took off in that direction. Turned out was not known at the time, 
that this was a kind of a, re, a revival of earlier ideas. There was a tradition which was unknown, was forgotten totally, but from classical Greece uh, up through the early 20th century, the study of language was regarded basically as a study of thought. Language and thought were regarded as either totally entangled or maybe identical. Language was an instrument for generating thought. Thought was what was generated by language. That was the standard view. Uh, the structuralist and behaviorist currents wiped this out. They took a totally different view, but what mm -hmm. came called the generative enterprise unknowingly, unwittingly, uh, did in a certain sense return to much of the tradition, pick up what couldn't have been done. There was one big problem in the tradition up through the, through the 19th century. It couldn't, had no clear concept of what it meant for a finite object to generate an infinite number of objects. Everybody understood language has an infinite number of expressions, but it's right. a finite object, brain's finite. Uh, how do you, and also there was no distinction made in the whole several millennia between production and generation, uh, what Aristotle called possession of knowledge and use of knowledge. Generation is possession of knowledge. Your knowledge of arithmetic is some recursive system which generates uh, properties of arithmetic, but your use of arithmetic is something quite different. Trying to calculate or prove a theorem or something. <clears throat> that distinction was never made. It uh, began to be clear, became very clear finally with the uh, development of the mathematical theory of computation in uh, Gertel, Turing, uh, Church, others in the toward the mid, mid early part of the 20th century. So by the time the generative enterprise took off, these notions were very clear. You could clarify, you knew the distinction between generation and production, you know what it meant for a finite object to infinitely generate, which is of course not production. Should mention that up to today, there's huge confusion about this, enormous. Hmm. The uh, current fascination with large language models totally confuses it irremediably. Almost everything that's said is complete nonsense because of this confusion. But uh, it did become clear by mid 20th century to those who wanted to understand uh, the, uh, the, the generative enterprise. Later years, it just became, uh, it sort of cast off the uh, range of ideas in the, became, I thought it was very clear early on to me and a couple of others that uh, language, that the idea of language as a matter of training and habit is completely impossible. You take a look at a child, nothing remotely like that has happened. The generative enterprise work did lead to a explosion of research and uh, psycholinguistics and uh, language acquisition, and a great deal has been learned, very important work. It was understood in the early 50s that there's a very serious problem of uh, uh, what's sometimes called Plato's problem. The way Russell Pullett put it is, uh, how come we know so much with 
so so little evidence that problem uh, called poverty of stimulus in the linguistic concept was known to be a serious problem in the early 50s but now now work on the topic has shown it's an enormous problem what a child knows at two or three years of age is way beyond any uh, evidence available there's got to be a rich internal structure uh, this has been a live issue and shouldn't be in my view but a lot of critical material in the philosophical literature i think quite mistaken but uh, anyway that that means that you have to cast out entirely the whole highly regressive uh, behaviorist framework and treat the growth of language as any other biological object so all of this work is in the framework of what's sometimes called biolinguistics, treating language as just another trait of the organism with properties similar to others. So you want to find the internal built-in structure that makes it that makes an infant capable of picking out language from the noise around it and going through a regular procedure of growing a system in the mind, which is what you and I are now using. Mm. Happens pretty early, a couple of years old. It doesn't not exhibited by a child at that point, but experiment shows that it's there internally. Then it develops and as a study of language then is partly a study of the in the it's called now universal grammar, the internal innately determined system that enables the system to develop and the uh, resulting systems in individual cases, yours, mine, somebody who speaks Swahili and so on. Uh, this uh, does have many similarities to the tradition from Greece, classical Greece through 20th century changed significantly because of the uh, appearance of the mathematical theory of communication, which put it on a solid basis, made the right distinctions, and a great deal of work in related fields. And this was also the dawn of cognitive science, which broke sharply from uh, the prevailing behaviorist tradition, not very much in philosophy, but in uh, psychology and so on, other fields. Uh, then it kind of goes on from there into the how it works out in detail. Yeah. Well, the relationship between language and arithmetic is something I'm quite curious about because I my research is in the philosophy of math. But you mentioned three things that I'd like to go into in more detail. So you mentioned the behaviorist framework, you mentioned Leonard Bloomfeld, and you also mentioned uh, language and thought. And maybe we'll, we'll start with the the last of them. But so two towering linguists of the earliest 20, 20th century were Edward Sapir and, and Benjamin Worf, who are best known, I mean, at least in pop culture for the Sapir-Worf hypothesis, though I understand that they didn't actually collaborate on this conception of linguistic relativity. So I don't know where I heard this, but I think it at least gives like a, a straw man, a good straw man representation of the hypothesis, even though that's a bit of an oxymoron. But I, what I heard was that the Native Americans, when Columbus and others arrived in the New World, they literally perceived the conquistadors' ships as being propelled by clouds because that was what they referred to the sails as, since they lacked 
uh, a better word for them. And this is hard to believe because probably because it's very wrong. But does this generally get at the notion of linguistic relativity and what the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis is about? Uh, the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis has been investigated empirically for about 70 years, beginning with a close friend and fellow graduate student of mine, Eric Lenneberg, who went on to found biology of language. So far, almost nothing has been discovered. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, languages differ, you know, talked about things differently, but seems to have almost no effect, no detectable effect on cognition, perception, and so on, except very much at the margins. So right now, um, there are, it is sometimes professed, but there are, there's work suggesting one or another effect, but uh, if anything, it's pretty marginal. The, uh, uh, the indigenous people when Columbus landed had other problems besides uh, what the sails were, like how to survive, you know? but uh, and many of them were totally exterminated, so they had bigger problems. But uh, the um, it's just a, it's a very marginal hypothesis, which has very little support. Turns out that fundamentally, I think Aristotle and the classics were basically right. We have the same. Aristotle himself held that there's basically one system of thought, and uh, as he put it, languages differ trivially in uh, how you pronounce things and so on, but that's insignificant marginal. Seems pretty much true. Before uh, we turn back again to some of your more positive work in the form of generative grammar, uh, the minimalist program, and then some other items, I'd like to talk a bit about B.F. Skinner, which I indicated earlier. So I recently spoke with uh, a Yale law professor, Scott Shapiro, and he described your review of uh, verbal behavior, Skinner's book, in one of his own pieces of writing as among the greatest philosophical takedowns in philosophical history. So what was the behavioral conception that Skinner espoused uh, for language? And what was, what was your criticism of it? Well, first of all, I should say in the back of my mind at the time was not so much Skinner as Quine. Oh, really? Okay. Quine was the most influential figure in the environment, the general environment at the time, leading philosopher, of course, major Anglo-American philosopher of language mind. And his views were basically dogma at the time. I was studying with him and we disagreed pretty sharply about this. If you look at his book, Word and Object, it's uh, which is what he was lecturing about in the 50s when I was taking courses with him, straight Skinnery. Uh, and I didn't personally didn't care that much about Skinner. I thought it was ridiculous, but Quine was very important. Uh, so I did write a detailed review of the Skinner book, which also was near dogma at the time. It was William James lectures, which had been circulated in around 1948. And, were the background of the general thinking of uh, uh, what's called the unified in science movement that was trying to develop uh, general ideas about language and mind. The idea was that 
thought that Skinner's was a real breakthrough. It was completely impossible. The fact is that if you if you take a look at what I did, just ran through it systematically. If you look at Skinner's proposals, if he use he uses terms like reinforcement and uh, conditioning and so on. If you take the terms literally, uh, it's complete nonsense. If you take them metaphorically, which he did, it's just a rephrasal of a mentalistic terminology in, without all the subtlety and complication and detail of it. So it essentially comes down to nothing. But then uh, for years, Coyne uh, and I had a number of uh, even published interchanges about this, but it was that's the background too. What was the substance of your interchanges with Quine? You can find them in the literature. It's about uh, his position. His position in Word and Object and other publications was uh, that there's, there's of course, uh, a general in philosophy, of, in the study of science or any empirical topic, there's always indeterminacy. So there's, you never reach certainty in uh, in an empirical inquiry that was understood since the 17th century. But he argued that for language, there's a, there's a kind of lethal indeterminacy that goes beyond the normal indeterminacy of physics, let's say. Uh, and I saw no basis for that whatsoever. His other claim was that uh, 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 there couldn't, he was one of the strong opponents of what philosophers called the innateness hypothesis. There was a debate at the time, uh, Goodman and Quine, Putnam, many others criticizing the innateness hypothesis. Nobody ever defended it. It was a one-sided debate because there is no innateness hypothesis. So there's nothing to discuss. Uh, the, there are specific innateness hypotheses like what a particular form of the innate structure that distinguishes a human infant from, say, a chimpanzee. Obviously a difference, like your kittens uh, won't uh, pick up language if they're here a language environment, so that's beyond discussion. There's some particular property that human infants have that other organisms don't have. That's not discussable. Only question is, what is it? Beyond that, there's no discussion. Uh, Putnam, Goodman, Quine thought there was a fundamental problem that there couldn't be anything innate. It's all conditioning, training, socially learned and so on. I should say that it's an interesting history if you look at it, there's a lot in print, but in 1969, there was a symposium on language and mind at New York University, Sydney Hook ran it. Quine uh, and I were participants, and in it he gave a very interesting paper, which as I wrote about it, and as far as I could read it, pretty much withdrew everything it ever said. What he said in the paper is that we of course have to accept whatever unknown innate properties uh, create the, overcome the gap between data presented and state attained. Well, if these are innate properties, then the state attained and their biological properties, which you can study by the methods of science, 
then the same is true of the outcome, uh, just by logic. If these are the properties that map innate uh, evidence to state attained, and you can study the uh, methods that carry the, the mapping, then you can study the outcome, it's automatic. But then everything collapses. There's no uh, problems of reference. There's no uh, indeterminacy, it's all just science. So I don't see what's left. It's kind of interesting that this paper is entirely omitted from the vast literature about coin, but I don't think it should be, and I think it's important. So as far as I was concerned, the discussion ended at that point. There's a, has to be built in an H structure, has to have the property that it maps data available to state attained. State attained is what you and I are now using. We can study the NH structure, we can study the state attained, we can look at the process that went on in between, it's all straight science, no indeterminacy beyond the normal indeterminacy. So it seems to me that that basically collapsed. Now, if you look at word and object, he defined the language as a complex of dispositions uh, that um, constructed by conditioning. Uh, can't possibly be true. There's no way to call what you and I are, are now doing a complex of dispositions and it wasn't established by conditioning. So I don't see any basis for that entire uh, history of that entire tendency in modern analytic philosophy. I think it collapses as soon as you begin to look carefully. This includes People like Hillary Putnam, close friend for many years, we disagreed about this, but uh, Nelson Goodman flatly rejected any conception of innate structure. He thought mistakenly that it had been undermined by Locke, it hadn't been. And, uh, uh, but that was a long discussion for many years in the philosophical literature. I couldn't refer you to references, but I think that's now basically pretty much disappeared. It's revived in uh, things like uh, the large language model, literature, the computational sciences. There's a lot of nonsense being produced about how these models sometimes rhetoric behaviorism show that maybe it was basically all right. They show absolutely nothing. If you look at their, you could go into it if you want, but basically they, if you look at the design of the systems, they're designed in principle in such a way that they can teach you nothing about language, learning, cognition, any other topic. What it amounts to is very skillful programming, clever programming, lots of interesting things, good engineering, uh, which ends up with a kind of high-tech plagiarism. But, uh, I mean, it's trivial reasons to show that it can't teach you anything about language, thought, cognition, or anything else. A lot of nonsense about this. You mentioned that there was no single innateness hypothesis. There, there were many different innateness hypotheses, and I just want to make sure that I understand. Are they concerned then about which neurological structures contain our language learning and producing mechanisms? Is that what the innateness hypotheses were hypothesizing about? It's like any other 
problem of biology. Take uh, the ants in my backyard. They carry out uh, remarkable uh, computational achievements of navigation, which uh, humans can't begin to approximate except without fancy instruments. Well, it's not an act of God. Right. Some innate structure. And biologists are interested in trying to find out what the innate structure is. Very little is known about the uh, neurophysiology of it. I mean, they have minuscule brains. You can do any kind of experiment you want, uh, no problems. But it's a very hard topic. Bioscience is not a trivial task. So there are study, abstract studies of what kinds of computation are involved in the ants. Uh, uh, ability to navigate, let's say, very good work on that, but knows very little about the neurophysiological mechanisms. And there are different hypotheses about it, it's science after all. So there's different proposals. Those are different innateness hypotheses. This is all considered problematic when we study the mind. I don't know why, it shouldn't be. It's exactly the same topic. But there's a kind of philosophers of abandoned metaphysical dualism. So you don't have Cartesian right. metaphysical dualism. Unfortunately, they've, many have replaced it by something worse, a mm. kind of a methodological dualism, which says we study things above the neck differently than the way we <laughs> see the rest of the world. Yeah. That's pernicious. There's no reason to study them the same way. So there shouldn't be any question about innateness hypothesis. Yeah, of course, there's something innate. Obviously, it's not a ma it's not magic that children learn language. So there's something innate. There are going to be many different hypotheses about it. That's the nature of science. Uh, we haven't figured it out. You're not going to find out much for a long time about the neurophysiology. For one reason, because it's an extremely hard problem, even for insects with uh, or right. with a, a brain the size of a grass seed, where you can do any experiment you want, it's going to be incomparably harder for humans because you can't do the experiments. You can think of lots of experiments you'd like to carry out, but they're ethically impossible. You're not going to isolate children, and you're not going to give them different uh, environments. You're not going to stick electrodes into their brains and so on. So it's, uh, and uh, we know a lot about human vision, the neurophysiology of it. The reason is because human visual system is approximately the same as other mammals. And you do, we rightly or wrongly, people do intrusive experiments with uh, cats and monkeys. And uh, that's taught a lot about the neurophysiology, so classical experiments by Hubel and Weasel with kittens, for example, showed, uh, found out a great deal about how the striate cortex is organizing uh, stimuli that come in and so on and so forth. Well, humans are about the same, so we know something about human vision. There are no organisms that have anything analogous to language, nothing. So you can't, there's no, there's no evidence from other organisms. Can't do the experiments with humans for ethical reasons. And also questions of scale, the human brain is enormously more complex than that of a kitten or certainly an insect. 
So all of these problems converge and which lead to the conclusion that it's radically premature to ask uh, what the neurophysiological basis is for uh, the, uh, the systems that we're studying. That's nothing new in the history of science, incidentally. I mean, chemistry was studied for centuries as basically a calculating system, had no basis in physics. It wasn't until about a century ago that physics was radically reconstructed so that it could link up with a virtually unchanged chemistry. The study of genetics is a shorter period, but for genetics was studied for a long time before anybody had an idea what a gene is. That's the way science has progressed. And we do the same here. Do the best you can to find out what the computational systems are. There is as much research as is possible with uh, direct investigation of neural systems, but it's very difficult. You can't do the experiments. For example, it's quite likely that the neural net models that are commonly used are just the wrong models for computational systems. Uh, Randy Gallistel, a very fine cognitive neuroscientist, has done important work showing that pretty convincingly, I think, that out of, from a neural net, you just can't get the basic computational uh, systems that are at the core of anything like Turing com computability, which you have to have for all of these systems. So it's kind of the wrong lamppost to look under. You have to look somewhere else. He suggests uh, could be intermolecular, internal to the mo molecules, that the, which have much more computational capacity. But all of this is right at the fringe of research. It's uh, hard topics. Doesn't not much use speculating about them. How does all of this talk of innateness relate to universal grammar? And perhaps we should start with what universal grammar is, but also one of the criticisms uh, or objections to it as a theory that I've seen is that it hasn't been empirically confirmed. But you've just mentioned that it's quite difficult to do these sorts of experiments and we shouldn't expect much data on them for quite some time. Universal grammar in the modern period, the last 50 years or so, is just the technical term for the theory of what's innate, that's all. So if something's innate, there's a theory about it, you try to discover the theory that's called universal grammar. Many different proposals about what it might be, of course. Uh, empirical evidence is overwhelming, but it's not what is misleadingly called empirical evidence. There's a tendency in, in, among philosophers and some others to think that it's not empirical evidence unless it's wet. Like if you find <laughs> a lab coat on and yeah. found it in the brain, then it's empirical evidence. If you explain large complex phenomena of language on the basis of very simple principles. That's not called empirical evidence. That's more of the methodological dualism. That kind of approach would have, would have eliminated chemistry for centuries. Because nobody knew what the physical basis was. I mean, Kekulé's diagrams, for example, were considered ways of calculating the results of experiments. 
In fact, there was much confusion about this. Even great scientists like uh, Poincaré and Mach uh, rejected uh, Boltzmann's uh, theory of, of gases because you couldn't find molecules. In fact, you couldn't, you didn't, couldn't see them, but uh, it was later shown, of course, that this was all mistaken. These were major, huge advances in science. And later, finally, uh, the Iraq polling were able to unify uh, chemistry, unchanged chemistry with quite new physics that came along, quantum theory. But uh, there's tons of empirical evidence. It's just not wet evidence, just as there isn't for insects. Kind of interesting that nobody ever criticizes the very sophisticated studies of uh, insect navigation because you don't know the neurophysiology. Nobody thinks you have to criticize that. Well, as again, the pernicious methodological dualism. We have to treat human thought differently from the rest of the world. We don't we treat it the same way as enormous empirical justification. There are various theories of universal grammar that are being sharpened, perfected, modified, proved, and so on. Those are different, if you want, different innateness hypotheses, but the term is absurd. You know? mm -hmm. You've mentioned insect and ant navigation a number of times. E.O. Wilson's Insect Societies is one of my favorite sort of academic books. Is he somebody that you knew uh, in your time in, in Boston? Yeah, we were, uh, we were at, at Harvard as grad students at the same time in the Society of Fellows. It's a small group of fellows at Harvard. We were both in it. We overlapped. Mm -hmm. hmm. uh, that's, that's very neat. Now, you indicated a, a bit earlier that these new sorts of computer models, I, I think that you were referencing such things as chat GPT won't teach us anything about language. And you said we could get a bit more into that. What did you have in mind? Is it because, well, I'll, I'll let you go. There's a minor reason and a major reason. The minor reason why they're not going to tell us anything is the astronomical difference in scale. It's extraordinary. 50 terabytes of data with a couple of billion parameters and throw some supercomputers at it. It's not going to tell you anything about an infant. That's the minor reason. The major reason is a matter of principle. Uh, suppose somebody came along with a theory of physics that said, my theory can describe a lot of things that are happening, can describe a lot of things that are impossible. And I can't make any distinction among them you'd laugh. That's large language models. It's exactly what they are. They, you, throw, you give them uh, 50 terabytes of data from a natural language, they'll find out properties of the data that they're looking at. Give it to them from an impossible language, they'll do exactly the same. They don't make any distinction. So, and that's built in to the design, irremediable which means that irremediably, they can tell you nothing about language, about cognition, about learning, about anything else. 
it's not a criticism. You know, maybe they're good for something. Uh, I have no objection to, I mean, in fact, I'm using it right now. I don't hear very well, so I'm using uh, captions. They're developed the same way. Uh, look at a ton of material, you find regularities, you figure out ways in which you can uh, map uh, auditory signals into something written. I think that's very valuable. Teaches absolutely nothing about perception or language or anything, but it's very useful. So maybe these will turn out to be useful for something. It's not obvious what, but uh, as a contribution to science, it's essentially like a like a physical theory that says, here are some things that can happen. Here are some that can't happen. I can't tell you the difference between them. There was a term you used uh, a couple of minutes ago that immediately caught my attention, and it was impossible language. What's an impossible language versus a, a possible language? I can easily design it. It's one that humans cannot, infants cannot acquire because it involves principles that humans don't use. There's some very trivial, simple examples. Yeah, please. Okay, take uh, maybe the simplest. Uh, one fundamental property of language, surprising property, is that the uh, rules and principles uh, have a condition called structure dependence. They operate on structures, not linearly ordered strings. So take a sentence like, uh, friends of my brother like each other, okay? Friends of my brothers like each other. Who likes each other? not the brothers, the friends. Mm -hmm. The way so-called anaphora works, uh, terms like each other, himself, and so on, is they find the closest antecedent. So if you say, the boys thought the girls like each other, it's the girls who like each other, not the boys. Closest antecedent in the sentence I used, friends of the brothers like each other, is brothers, but you don't use it. And furthermore, this is known, but every, furthermore, every construction in every language works the same way. The rules operate on, which, which your mind is actually doing, is forming the structure of the sentence and finding the core semantic element in that structure. It's quite a complex algorithm. You're not using a simple algorithm. Find the closest antecedent. And the reason is that the computational procedures of language do not use linear order, which is pretty striking because 100% of the data presented to you is linear order. Right. You reject 100% of the data, the infant does it, throw it out, and you use abstract structures, which you never, you never hear, the mind constructs. Every construction in every language, well, what does that tell you? It tells you that something internal is saying, I don't pay any attention to linear order. I just pay attention to abstract structures that I can construct. We now have a pretty good explanation of this. It turns out that if you ask yourself, what is the simplest computational procedure that'll yield a recursive enumeration of an infinite number of structured objects? turns out to be basically binary set formation. Right. It's unordered. And, and that's what 
universal grammar is, tells the child use the simplest computational operation, which entails disregard 100% of what you hear. And uh, now let's take a large language. Suppose you, let's take an impossible language, one that uses linear order and doesn't use abstract structures. Large language models will do fine. Mm -hmm. They'll interpret uh, sentences in terms of closest entity and just be wrong. Okay, and then many things like that. I mean, after all, not everything is a possible language. Uh, it's just certain things are that have very definite properties in common. If that weren't the case, no infant would ever learn language. Learn if if an infant thought anything is possible, it'll never learn a thing. It's pretty obvious. It has to have built-in structure that determines here's the what I here's the conclusions I reach from this impoverished data, and uh, that by definition, purely logically, excludes things that violate these conditions. So there's going to be masses of impossible languages. Large language models couldn't care less. They'll do just as well with one set as another. So it's very much like a physical theory says, here's some things that can happen. Here's things that can't happen. I, not, I don't care about the difference between them. As I say, if that was presented in physics, you'd laugh. Mm -hmm. Why should you laugh here? So the fact that a large language model can work with an impossible language tells us that it's operating in an entirely different manner from humans, which makes it useless for studying human language. Or studying any, any problem of cognition or learning. And okay. we, know that we, don't, we don't know the details of how it works. It's quite complicated, but the basic idea is quite simple. Mm -hmm. uh, you study huge astronomical masses of data you find statistical regularities. There's some, quite a lot of clever programming involved that ends up that you get a pretty good prediction of what the next word ought to be after a sequence of words. String all that together, looks sort of like human language. Okay. Now, this is a, a more philosophical question, but is, or at least I think it is, is linguistics concerned or equally concerned with impossible languages as it is with possible languages? Is physics concerned with impossible physical systems? If it is, I haven't seen it. Okay. So, interesting. Hmm. So is that brings me then, I guess, to a different question. Is the is linguistics concerned then with possible languages or just actual instantiated languages? Possible languages. There's no, I mean, the instantiated languages are, in a way, a kind of accident. So, lots of actual languages are being exterminated. Indigenous languages, for example, even in uh, and many new, and in fact, every generation comes up with a new language. Your language is not the same as your parents. Mm -hmm. uh, it's almost identical, but not exactly. In, case, in my case, let's say my parents are immigrants. So my native language is quite different from their native languages. 
uh, that happens every my my grandchildren speak differently than I do. They use mm -hmm. teenage stuff that I don't use and so on. So there's always changes in language, but what you're interested in, uh, just as in, just as exactly as in physics or chemistry or anything else is, what are the possible systems? In physics, you're not interested in, this is the way uh, this uh, cup in my hand will fall if I drop it. You're not particularly interested in that. What you wanna know is, how, what are the laws of motion and so on mm -hmm. possible, that deal with possible systems. So to paraphrase, it is not concerned with the set of human utterances or inscriptions, but oh, is very it much concerned with that? Well, have, there's two levels of study. Okay. One, you want to study the initial state of the organism, the shared common innate faculties that make every human, every human infant capable of learning any language. You want to study that. Then you want to study the states that are attained. What actually are the properties of English or Swahili or Tagalog or whatever in terms of that's of course the evidence that you use, the data that you use, just as again in physics, you're interested in the results of particular experiments now, in the case of language, you can't make experiments. So you have to take natural experiments. If it were some other organism other than humans, we'd create experimental conditions under which the state would be attained, but we don't allow ourselves to do that. So you take the natural experiments and they're very much interested in the details of them. That's what gives you the way of, like take what the example that I just gave friends of my brothers like each other. Well, that's property of English. And you have to look, but it's a property that happens to teach you something. It teaches you that humans disregard linear order and work only with abstract structures that their minds construct. But if you don't look at the details of particular languages, you don't learn that. Mm -hmm. So I, I guess I'm still trying to understand what I guess what I'm trying to understand is what possible languages are. are. Are they something like potential modes of symbolic representation or, or what? No, they're okay. the kind that our innate capacities yield. We have innate capacities, a language faculty. It's an empirical fact, which seems to be true as far as we know, that it's shared among humans. There seems to be very little genetic diversity among humans. So it seems to be the case that every human infant, apart from severe pathology, can acquire with equal facility any language. So there's something built in, fixed language faculty theory of it is called universal grammar. That internal system yields a class of possible systems. Could be a finite, it's probably a finite class for other reasons, but a, a huge class of possible systems. Those are the possible languages. Very much like in physics or take chemistry, chemistry take a periodic table. It says, here are the possible elements, okay? 
and you try to refine it so you get an explanation of why these are the possible elements and other things are not. That's science. It's no difference here. And then returning to another question I began at the, or I set out at the beginning of our conversation, granted that linguistics hasn't been around for as long as physics, philosophy, or mathematics, the three other disciplines I mentioned, um, does it still strike you as fundamentally the same subject as de Saussure's or his predecessors. I mean, you mentioned the ancient Greeks and their thinking on language and thought, but my understanding is that somewhat prior to in the centuries before de Saussure, linguistics was more the study of actual languages and how they changed rather than the study of uh, possible languages as well. That was true in the 19th century with the development of Indo-European linguistics. And in fact, Saussure's major work was in that area. His, his really serious contributions were in Indo-European linguistics, uh, not general linguistics, that was a kind of sideline. But uh, there was a great deal of work, it's mostly, it's been forgotten, it starts in the, uh, it goes way back, but uh, in the modern period, it begins with the modern scientific revolution, 17th century, uh, Galileo and his contemporaries, the logicians, uh, philosophers, linguists of the Royal Monastery, were very struck by the fact, by a pretty remarkable fact, Galileo himself was, that with a finite number of symbols, we can produce infinitely many thoughts, and we can even somehow convey to others who have no access to our minds, the innermost workings of our minds. They regarded this as one of the most fantastic phenomena of nature. I think he's quite right. How does it happen? Uh, then that led to rich studies of what was called general and rational grammar. General because it was supposed to apply to all possible languages rational because it was seeking explanations, not descriptions. Major developments for centuries went on through the, into the early 20th century. Then it was completely forgotten, wiped aside by structuralism and behaviorism, which I think were off in the wrong direction. Now we're returning to the tradition. Hmm. And the last thing I'll ask for today is we've talked about some of the deficiencies of the large language models, but is there any serious positive impact they have on, they've had on linguistics of the past decades or what's going to happen in the future? It's impossible in principle. If you have systems, you have a, it's like asking whether a physical theory that can't distinguish what's possible from impossible can have an effect on physics. I mean, can't rule it out, you know, who knows, but certainly no reason to expect it. Hmm. 
Okay, well, Noam, unless I somehow manage to win uh, a Nobel Prize, this will have certainly been uh, one of the highlights of my academic life. So thank you so much for your generosity and talking with me today. Good to talk to you. Hold on, Geeslings. Before you go, please uh, like, subscribe, follow if you haven't already. Smash all those buttons. And also, if you haven't followed me on uh, Twitter at Robinson Earhart, or if you're not joining me every morning as I eat my pint of ice cream on Twitch at Robinson Earhart on Robinson Eats, please do so.